Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Kruptos, who is a Canadian and an ex-pastor and a fervent admirer of the French philosopher and lay theologian Jacques Ellul. Jacques Ellul's thought is most densely concentrated in two main works, The Technological Society and Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitudes, which are very stark critiques of Western society. And according to Jacques Ellul, those are the black pill and his white pill is his theology. In this conversation with Kryptos, we talk about Ellul's thought and his critique of society and how what Jacques Ellul lays out can possibly be a path through the present moment into a more coherent political reality. Kryptos is fantastic to speak with. I hope to get him back on again because he is definitely a pastor. He's got he's got a lot in his head and a lot to say. And he does writing on Substack that distills his thought and Jacques Ellul's thought into very precise little essays. So definitely check that out and also follow him on Twitter if you're into following people on Twitter. Without further ado, here's Kryptos. Pleasure to meet you, Ben. It's been nice chatting with you online. I'll be honest, I had not heard of your podcast. I mean, there's a lot of us doing podcasts out there and stuff, eh? So what got you into doing podcasts? Oh, my background story was that I was at the Evergreen State College, and uh, in 2017, it erupted in a proto-2020 race-based dissolution of every uh, concept of order, propriety, and law. And I, I witnessed the buildup to that firsthand, and I saw the progressive <laughs> ideology uh, just lose all sense of restraint and connection to reality. And so, because everybody, because the students had streamed their antics, and it just became such a big deal, um, all the YouTubers and all the the whole internet started commenting on it. But they didn't see it from the inside. I was there on these workshops and seminars and Robin DiAngelo showed up. I saw them being trained in becoming radicals. And so what I did was I kind of exhumed all of that footage of all of these, uh, you know, these basically mm-hmm. ceremonies, worshiping anti-racism, worshiping the black oh, folk and, yeah. and very explicitly worshipful. And, uh, oh, and yeah. I was, I was there and I grew up Christian, my, you know, grew up going to church all the time. My dad's a pastor, was a pastor. He's retired now, but, um, I saw that they were trying to recreate church in the most cringy possible way. Um, so I just started doing that. And then that just kind of, that was seven, five, six years ago. Oh, yeah. Now, so. Well, and it's it's amazing. Sorry, my wife just texted me, so I'm That's just going to text her back so she's not. Um, no. um, uh, but, you know, so I, I, I also come from an explicitly Christian background, and um, that was in, in a number of these things that uh, worship died, especially with COVID, it was really apparent. Once you understand things like um, the Old Testament clean and unclean dynamic, Right. So you yeah. had a whole bunch of the population that were labeled unclean. And then the, the question became, you know, how do we then render these people clean? Right. And in the end, it, you know, it's the vaccine. It's um, you have to banish them. You have masks. to put masks on them. Yeah. Right. You know, and I, I, I would joke with my leftist friend, you know, like 
maybe you should need to walk around and just have them shout unclean, unclean, unclean as they walk through, you know, the unvaxxed through society, right? And that way everybody will know to, to stay away. But there was a very implicit religious dynamic to it. And um, I think part of it is just... Um, who was the the, gen, the Dutch psychologist who talked about you know the the mask or mass psychosis um, formation psychosis yeah psychosis yeah and um, you could definitely see a lot of that it's just a lot of diffuse anxiety that people have that was uh, then outletted and, and funneled into COVID as a way to try to both reestablish community bonds but also to um, da 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 da. Um, but, but also to search to, for transcendence, yeah. Well, and also to just eliminate the the anxieties that they have that way, right? So, so anytime you want to start recording, go ahead. Or yeah. if you, I'm, then, I'm, yeah, I'm just waiting for a conversation. I'll just cut in when we start going. I like what you're talking about about COVID, and with regard. So this would be like the official interview, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, nope. When I was at Evergreen, I was inoculated to what they were doing. One, I was kind of older. I was 36 when I started, mm -hmm. so I wasn't as malleable. But there was something yeah. in my background in Christianity that inoculated me to the cult dynamics of it. And I think that uh, what you're talking about with the mass formation psychosis in 2020, uh, the left or these explicitly post-religious people, they just weren't inoculated to that groupthink and to that, that stuff. It's... And not to say that, that Christians aren't, um, don't have like cultic tendencies or aren't susceptible to that, but it seems like a, an understanding of religion would help society navigate Moments of, of utmost stress. Sorry about my freaking cat. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> cat! <laughs> I gotta kick him out of the room. This is just insane. There you go. That's fine. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> now, now he'll be scratching at the door, but I'll just ignore that. So, I think this is one of these things that, um, because a lot of people, for whatever reason, don't read Alul. I don't know, because Alul was very careful, even though he was basically Calvinist in sort of European, the European sense. Um, and, um, you know, was quite involved in the house church movement in France and very um, open about his Christianity. Like most Europeans, when he did scholarship, it was done in a very academic, secular kind of way you don't really mix so he has there so with Alul, there's very much his explicitly christian writings and very much his explicitly um academic writings now his christian writings are quite academic as well too but they're they're more so people have said that Alul is kind of your ultimate black pill but largely because a lot of them haven't read his more explicitly Christian works, right? So you have to kind of take the whole... Now, I have not read everything that Alul has written. He's very... Sounds like he wrote a lot. <laughs> I have read a lot. Um, and it, it's... I mean, not all of it's available in English either. So that's the other thing that, that hinders. And my French... I mean, even though I, as a Canadian, I did learn some French, it's not quite what it should to be reading Alul. But so because people don't re read... Alul, I think there's a lot of dynamics that they don't understand. Now, other authors have pointed this out, um, Christopher Lash being one of them. Um, I'm trying to think of, um, uh, but the, the, what, what happens is in 
our modern society. So the combination of the market and technique and technology is that there's a constant drive for the sort of a push up to larger and ever more all-consuming systems, right? So what happens is, is that the market, the systems, um, you know, bureaucracy, management, all of that, that sort of underlying technique of society, so technical management, the whole bit of it, um, along with propaganda, so mass media. And what, what these tend to do um, is that they erode all of your mediating institutions. So when you have a society that's based upon liberty and joy, and it, it was easy to... It was easy to push because basically fundamental, like free marketism is more or less libertarian market ideas, right? So it, it very much coalesces with the idea of libertarian moral ethics. But the, these libertarian ideas of freedom of choice, um, uh, autonomous moral agent, all of these kind of things are rooted in there. So once you get a market that wants you to buy stuff, they, they reach into these communities and beginning you begin to corrupt them. So you do it with first material choice. Well, I want that new dress. I want that new, I want a television. I want, you know, I want the new product. And so you have all of these, these new choices that, that are open to you. And then you begin to make these market choices. And as the market works its way in, it becomes, everything becomes more and more and more about the market in a sense you become a commodity i mean we look at like the free internet everything so as it commodifies everything as everything becomes enmeshed in technique as everything becomes massified um, all of these mediating institutions disappear so instead of the the the, the state being filtered down through a series of institutions like the lodge the church um uh, just uh, the, the union and all these other local institutions is just you and the state, you and mass media, you and the large corporation, and there's there's nothing really in between, right? And so the person is really largely becomes at the mercy then of the propagandist. Um, hmm. uh, Aaron Holt well, but- in a book called The Lost City, he made a sorry he made a note of this that um, it it as, as the community erodes, people are then faced with having to make all of these choices themselves. But before, prior to this, the community made these choices on your behalf. So you knew who you were going to marry. You knew what your work you were going to do. You knew also the, all these all these choices that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, the vast majority of them were made. So yeah, you, you it's suffocating. You don't have choice. Um, but yeah. at the same time, um, you had the comfort of being part of enmeshed in this small community. So where do you find still the last extant functioning communities, which are really churches? And so churches well, become then a buffer for mass society, which is why many of the most resistant people to the COVID ideology were people in churches, in part because the, they, they know what they believe. It's reinforced by everybody around them. And they were just, there was a sort of a built-in buffer that gave them the space to be skeptical, yeah, if that okay. makes sense, right? Well, and so, yeah. yeah. But church, churches are a good institution um, or example of an institution that provides what you're saying, an, an embeddedness that is localized rather than uh, un, uh, just completely given over to uh, the state or big business or whatever that is, that, that mass society, you say, which is yeah. a, a, just to try to define our terms, mass society would be 
Yarvin uses the term cathedral, but what mass society is, is, is this, the total state, which is embedded with all the corporations, which is embedded in, in, embedded in all of the universities and in all of the media. And it's acting, it's kind of acting on its own, like an egregore, like a, like a power or a principality, right? No, no, there's no one thing controlling it because everybody in it is unmediated by that, that thing is just well, selecting it's, it's that. It's, it's that and more. So some of it is, is intentional. But so if you understand like a lule and propaganda, what happens is, is that when, when, when all of these groups are, are broken down is mass society does one of two things. It first isolates you, makes you into like an isolated autonomous individual, right? But then it regroups you okay, into a larger group that it determines, right? So you get placed into this larger group that it determines. So, um, the, the, so the propagandist then speaks to the crowd, but he does so in such a way that you feel like you're being spoken to individually, right? <laughs> so you, you've, on the one hand, you feel like part of a crowd, but you never actually belong in the sort of the spiritual sense, the way that you would to a community, you're always isolated and you're always an individual. You're always at the mercy of the propagandist, yet your identity is given to you by the propagandist, right? So um, it comes through, I mean, everything from advertising, like prop it, uh, um, uh, Marketing is basically propaganda. So like the shirt you wear, you know, the fact that I have a Michigan cap on is a certain level of propaganda, right? Yeah. That, you know, you have your little Lacosta um, uh, alligator on your yeah. shirt, yeah. right? And so you've got your gap jeans, you've got whatever, you know, and so you've got your identity that's been built for you from all of these pieces from the, the propagandists, but they're not organic. They're not um, they're not localized. They're all basically products of what the propagandist has told you. So you become, this is why the internet is in a sense that's so dangerous is becomes, okay, here we are, we're both individuals, but we now feel like we're part of a movement. Uh, the movement gets who we are, we're conservatives or whatever. So now I'm attached to this movement, but am I really spiritually a part of anything? I'm still an individual isolated by myself. And so what Alul says, see, so you have this dangerous thing of, of everything has been stripped away. You're the isolated individual. And then the propagandist then gives you back your identity in the mass. And you become this sort of massified man um, who is always isolated and alone, but yet is made to feel like they're part of a larger whole that's then determined for them. Right. And so this is what's sort of the beauty of COVID, right? So now, you know, man kind of hungers back for that real community, but they were, they had the, 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 the thought that, oh, here we can return to the kind of society where everybody cares about one another, everybody helps one another. Um, we can all band together and do this, right? And this is part of the reason why people, you know, love these disasters, right? They can go all in and then for a brief period of time, they can yeah. re-engage real community. But it doesn't stay because they they don't want to give up the power of choice. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want people in their business. They want to be free to make their own choices. They don't want anybody telling them what right and wrong is. They don't want that busybody lady down the street um, always nosing in their business. So yeah. people people don't really want tight-knit communities, but they want the feeling of tight-knit communities, right? So they want to feel like something larger, but they don't want to give up 
their their freedom of choice. And so for the most part, most of us are at the mercy of the propagandist because um, we're isolated, we're alone, we don't necessarily understand what the propagandist is doing to us, and then our identity is fed through us. Yeah. Through the large, and then so COVID fits into all of that, right? So then it explodes, and very few people have actually. And and to be the funny thing is, is that um, generally educated people are less resistant to propaganda than most. It's it's one of those um, because their intelligence or their training has separated them from a pre-consensual, pre-rational sense of belonging. Be. Yeah. yeah, that could be it too. It, it's just, but the people have noted that 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 generally. Um, the people who are more often the most gung ho um, are often um, the highly educated for whatever reason. Um, you'd think that they would have enough in their education to um, gung ho for what though? It's got to be a certain sort of thing. So it, we can take Evergreen State College for example. You have all these professors professing their belief in this saving of the marginalized, right? And they get yeah. so damn religious about it. And you're like, well, why are you putting your your religiosity here is it because it's absent everywhere else and you finally found a place within this institution that you believe in to profess that we need to dismantle this institution that you believe in because it's promoting white supremacy or whatever it is right why it, it just it just activated their religiosity so strongly and then again at, at covid black lives matter when that happens in 2020 it activates that fervor so there's got to be some sort of quality to what exactly activates that mass movement and that, that surrendering of, of belief into thing or investing their belief into things. So my thought on this, I think, is that, and I've been coming around to this in the last six months to a year, is the idea, we've often talked about how the West is like a Christian culture. And on a certain level, that's correct. Um, but about a year ago, I read Oswald Spangler and um, had my eyes opened a little bit. And um, it, it got me thinking about sort of the nature of, you know, we've always looked at, at Western culture as something that has grown up out of, of, of Christianity. But it's, I've begun to see it, at Western culture, as something more that has been a competitor to, um, to Christianity, in a sense that I think you know, if you, if you take seriously this idea of the Faustian West, sort of the pursuit of unlimited knowledge, unlimited wealth, off to the horizons, right? Um, and if you understand that the Christian faith is very much about, in many ways, about limits, right? Um, you know, Humility. you can eat, of any, eat yeah. of any fruit in the garden, but, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the one I tell you not to, right? So that there's this fundamental idea that we live, that, that the fullness of, of, the full realization of who we are as human beings comes when we accept the limits that God has given us, right? And the West has fundamentally, from the very beginning, been about breaking down. Now, anything that starts in its infancy doesn't start fully formed, right? But the, the fully mature version of this this quest for the horizons, for unlimited knowledge, unlimited wealth, um, you know, the, a world without limits, um, you end up seeing it instantiated, I think, in this idea of human progress, of history, the, yeah. just the very idea of history itself, you know, okay. following Hegel and so forth, that there's a directionality to history that we're moving yeah. forward. So, so this idea of progress emerges out in conflict. Now, of course, oh, there's always some Christians who will then try to harmonize it, right? So you get, you know, the you get the idea that, well, 
we're we're working towards Christ's return in the second coming by you know um, the social gospel type of Christianity sort of where we become Christianity is the true progressives kind of thing right because we're working for for Christ's new kingdom but in a sense when you look at it um, you know the idea is that every great culture has at its core a profoundly and deeply religious idea and I think that 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 profoundly deeply religious idea is less Christian and more this this belief in human progress okay uh, rather than and, and this this idea of, of the belief in human progress has been in conflict with Christianity and has slowly usurped it and set it off to the, the side because the Christian faith has always been to say well no, you can't do that. It's against God's law. It's against it. This is this is this you know, this corrupts the grace of Christ. You can't embrace God's you know God's grace in Christ if you just decide you know do whatever you want to do, right? So, there has always been this limiting factor. So, in the Enlightenment and in um, industrialization, you know, in the rise of the bourgeois economy, market economy, you had this gradual throwing off of the restraints of Christianity. So that way, this kind of Faustian Western idea of of questing for the horizon, questing for knowledge without limits, questing for wealth without limits, could finally fully be realized. So in a in a place like Evergreen College, what you're seeing then is that'd be my mind is is people going back to their core societal the core western religious beliefs in a sense this is yet the the next instantiation of human progress and no, they so say we, we, explicitly yeah explicitly right so this is this is basically the latest form of of our core our society's core religion yeah right okay. and this is why for me too like when you talk about uh, you know the left and the right and so forth i'm coming to the realization that if you want to talk about a genuine right-wing opposition you almost have to in some sense be shall we say anti-western in in an idea of say like okay and i've written one of my pieces i wrote the idea that you know technique is almost kind of like sin in a sense that once you've bitten of the apple there's no putting it back in the box and now you have to deal with the knowledge like like cain Right. You know, sin crouches at the door, but you have to master it. Yeah. And so we have now with technology, even if, let's say, the whole modern world collapses, that knowledge is not going to disappear. People are going to want to be technical. So in a sense, even though technique is integrally wrapped up in this whole notion of human progress, we have to find a way to embrace technology that um, subsumes it under the greater... Um, yeah. authority, shall we say, of the Christian faith. You know what I mean? Where it's it's subordinate. Because right now, technique, money, all of these things, um, we be, I think more say that we are in bondage to technology more than the other way around. It just runs itself. Um, yeah. And like the idea that you would say no to any new device or technique or anything is just laughable almost at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you do it almost because it's new, it's therefore good. Yeah. Well, um, there's so many, you're bringing so much to the table here. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, we're going to just going to bounce around. It's going to be a that's shotgun fine. interview. Um, no, 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 that's okay. I'm, I'm good. I can bounce. <laughs> so when you say that progress is the core, um, the core seed, the core spiritual seed within modern modernity, let's say yes. prior to modernity, you would have the medieval period, the Christian West. Mm -hmm. And prior to the Christian West, you have Rome, right? So Rome has its own 
spiritual seed. Um, I don't know what that would be. Conquest. We'd have to, we'd have to figure out what that would be. Spangler has some ideas. I think some of them are good. You know, the the idea of excellence. You okay. know, especially yeah. within the you know, those Roman virtues. Okay. Arete, you know what I mean? The pursuit okay. of excellence, those types of things, right? Okay. So, And then those are subordinate or they go underground through throughout the Christian period. So it must it must be that that, that Roman virtue, that Greek virtue mated somehow with the Christian virtue. And then we have modernity, right? So we yeah, have because so, progress doesn't exist before modernity. That that concept that concept of time, you don't find that no. in history before No. And and, the and Elul notes this that in in his book the 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 technological society, he notes that um the Greeks actively rejected machines in a sense that because they saw them as um, infringing on human excellence so that if you had a machine that could do something for you, um, you no longer had to do it and be great at it, right? So yeah. up up through the Middle Ages, you had a, a handful of simple tools and you used your skill and your wit and your craft to make beautiful things with, with inadequate tools. And it yeah. was you as a human being who did that. Now we have superior tools and the human is almost completely uninvolved in in the making process, right? Yeah. So other the than machine just consumption. Is, yeah. Well, or or you monitor the machine type of thing, right? So, so the Greek idea does not have this idea of of linear history that has a beginning and an end. Um, I'm trying to remember what Spengler's idea, but um, in the Middle Ages, you know, if if you, I'm kind of bouncing around here. Uh, Mircea okay. Eliade, the um, the myth of the endless return which everybody should read. Um, but he talks about the different time concepts. Um, so in the ancient society, he argued that you, it was very much archetypal. So history would constantly repeat itself. You, you can see this archetypal re repetitions in the Bible in many ways. So maybe see, even astrology, like, because yes, everything's a big cycle and there's different phases with different the, themes. The, the, grand, like. the, grand, the grand cycle of the heavens. But so... In this typological idea, you became who you were by emulating the great types. So you would become a great man like David, right? So you would emulate the man from the story, right? And you yeah. can see how you can see how various kings in the Old Testament were written um, to to make them out to be a type, you know. And that's the thing with Christ. And so, you, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see Christ taking up all of these types that are in the Old Testament. So he's he's Joseph, he's Moses, he's David. And so he into Christ, he picks up all of these types, and he is the great man, so to speak. He is the fulfillment of all of the archetypes okay. that have been. You know what I mean? And, yeah, but and, with Christ, just one footnote with Christ. He's picking up all of these archetypes, but one major uh, beautiful aspect of the Old Testament is that everybody's flawed, but Christ yes. isn't flawed, right? So Christ exactly somehow it. redeems every one of these. That's right. He's a man without sin. Yeah. So that's. But then. So then. Th this is the, the the biblical idea of quote unquote history that gets picked up. Um, in the Middle Ages, right? So hi biblical history is not really history where we think whether it's man-centric, right? In biblical idea is it's God-centric. So you have a basic large superstructure. You have the creation, you have the fall, you have redemption, you have the second coming, right? And this is God's grand story of redemption. Yeah. And everything human happens within 
God's story, right? So until the second coming comes, we're sort of in a holding pattern, right? And so everything that we're trying to do is about revealing the second coming as best we can in the life today. So we recognize that everything is flawed. And so we're never going to have perfect institutions. But in many ways, what we try to do is do the best that we can, right? And so we preserve institutions because um, these seem to be the best that we can do, given the circumstances that we have in a sinful world, right? And that's why you have these long you know, the, the, the sport of tradition and, and this idea of a living tradition. And we're just basically awaiting for the second coming of Christ. So in in the Renaissance and later in the Enlightenment, as you, you, you begin to awaken this idea of historical consciousness, it then places, and it's also come to these um, materialisms, right? So when you have a world that's saturated with the supernatural, saturated with the divine, meaning is out there. It's in the metaphysical. You can see it all around you. It's in the archetypes. It's in the in, in God's grand story. Yeah. Um, and in a material world, you just have dead inert matter. There's nothing out there. So now what happens is this shift of history comes is that in this, in this dead world um, of just matter, um, the burden for meaning falls to us as human beings, right? So now we are at the center of history. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. We are creating meaning. And now, and this is what Eliade talks about, we are now then, and then if you give it this directionality along with scientific progress, requesting for knowledge, questing for wealth, questing for the horizon, you can then give it a kind of directionality in a sense, we as human beings at the center are uncovering our ultimate purpose. So then you get, you know, the Heideggerian turn of being and, and you flip it down. And so human being is now found not in the static world that's around us. It's at us at the center of the universe. And we are creating the world ahead of us on the horizon of, of, of being, you know, the Dasein that right at the moment, authentic in this, you know, and then you combine this sort of, you throw in the mix sort of, um, um uh the the romantic mix of 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 the personal genius right and then so everybody has this a creative artistic genius that they Their have authenticity so now it's, that is unveiled your yeah. authenticity right and so everybody's now at the center of history creating their own history it has to be authentic and you have to realize your personal your your personal thing and then as you bring in these ideas of of liberal atomization we no longer have a great culture that everyone on their own is realizing their own progressive it, it just becomes again this is that spengler thing just kind of atomizes after a while right so everybody now history and this is kind of where we're at in this moment this well, and just to add something to that is you also have this quest for justice too um, the civil rights movement is the cathedral of America. That's where all these atoms join up in history yes. and get subsumed into this grand, uh, he, uh, what, uh, Hegel? You're like, well, you, yeah, we're now Hegel, part of but the, also Rousseau, because if, you know, that's the other thing, you take out the idea of human sinfulness, that I'm born flawed. If I'm a blank slate and, and then... Society um, corrupts me or molds me. Corrupts yeah. me. Then the idea is if I can perfect society, if I can perfect the systems, again, technical thinking, if I can perfect the systems, then human beings themselves will be perfected. So this is the great technical project, right? So it all dovetails with managerialism, right? And managerialism is sort of technical management. And so it's the same whether it's in government, in corporations. Like, like this is why woke capital, because... 
Well, this is why DEI, um, like the University of Michigan, has like spending millions of dollars a year on, on sure. just bureaucracy that does nothing well, and, but and, like look at people's language, you know. But this is this is the technical project, right? So if you can apply human resources to to managing all of these things, so in government, in private, in in the in the NGOs, so this this grand societal project to technically manage everything. And in this great technical system, we are going to emerge at the end of it as perfect. That'll be utopia. We will manage our way to perfection, right? And that's that's kind of the the the, the grand vision. And you can spin it into too, like, okay, science. So you things that often we take for granted, like um, evolution, right? Evolution is the idea of history writ large. So okay, you dispense with God, you dispense with the creation. So how did we get here? So well, you need an origin story. Right. And so origin story. So now you have you, you take this idea of human progress and you extend it through the entire cosmos from beginning to to the end. And so now we have this great um, this great idea of human progress from just it's all material. So we randomly just arrived and now we're, we're gradually humanly just, pro you know, nobody ever asked the question. So why should things progress? But that's, you know, um, <laughs> well, that, a, see, that's what I was um, when. So I don't know if I'm right wing or I know I'm not left wing, but um, I'm still I'm still grappling with with what I am. But um, yeah. so I'm in dialogue with a lot of the dissident right thinkers. And one of the conversations that I had with a younger man about what is the right, what is the right, what is the left? Because it's very easy yeah. to forget what those terms mean or just use them to make friend enemy distinctions that don't actually build anything. Oh, other than, <laughs> yeah. Other than that tug of war. Um, but it sounds like to me that the right is is we can't go backward right we can't undo what what's happened um and we can't impose a fascistic order i don't think that that's the way forward but we do need to figure out a different relationship to time where because pr progress is going to keep on progressing the technical technical societies keep on progressing ai is going to take over if we don't you know keep our hands at the wheels and it'll probably take over anyways so there has to, and this is what I see in your writing when you start to speak about Christianity and a connection to the transcendent, where time, time and technology, it's it's the world, but mm -hmm. we are not of the world. We're just in the world. So we need to, we need to see progress in a, in a completely, maybe just changing the the angle of what we think of as progress as a spiritual development, right? I, I need to develop yes, as and that's, a spiritual that's, being. That is essentially. The, and that's essentially the, the 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 what you might call the medieval sort of the Christian when you actually had a real Christendom that was the the that was the understanding right so human progress was your progress to the divine theosis divinization um, beatification right so it was your progress towards Christ likeness right and so the point of the state then in conjunction with the other institution of the church is to work hand in hand together to create a society in which people are able to pursue that vision of of you know person you know and there was there was variations so it was always assumed that the you know the monk or the priest you know they were the ones that really were able to do it i mean the rest of us kind of looked like the priests wish we could do it but we know that at least if the priests are doing it that it's getting done right okay and that's okay. that's kind huh. of you yeah. know um but, and then the Protestant Reformation comes uh, through and says, "No, it's it's up to you. It's up to you, right?" Yeah, the whole justification and, and thing. I'm, you know, I am 
fundamentally Calvinist in my orientation. So it's it's just one of those things where, but I have come to to realize that um, the the Protestant Reformation did con- contribute to the present moment and to the Adventist because what you lose in in the breakup. Now it was it was one of those things where I think the reformers never intended to split off from the Catholic Church. But when the church says, well, you're all a bunch of heretics, and then the, the heretics say, well, I'm sorry, we disagree with you. We're going to go our own way anyways. And then it was wrapped up in a bunch of political. So you had enterprising princes who thought, well, I'm kind of chasing under this whole Holy Roman Emperor thing anyways. I'm going to just bankroll a few of these Protestants and, and kind of be done with the Catholic Church. Oh, there was like a right. theal capital back there, the intellectual reformation yeah. web, funding the whole project. Something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the print, but there was a number of princes that that, that did bankroll. Like Luther had prote- had protection and um, I'm just... I think, I, okay. I've learned more things than... Yeah, I've, I've forgotten <laughs> more things than... than um, but so there... So, but once you begin to 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 atomize the church, it reduces witness. So this is one of the things that I have reduces you know, witness. It reduces its witness and its its punch. So, okay. in a sense, if you don't speak as a single voice, right? You know, if you don't have, there's no, in a sense, um, integrated unity where you say the church speaks. Like, how did it? Like, how did today was does the church speak? Now we have the churches may speak, but there's no way for the church to speak. And so I think part of, you know, and this is why I've talked about um, getting back to the basics and really almost seeing ourselves that we're in that kind of Augustinian moment where Rome is is crumbling um, and we no longer should be putting our faith in Rome like we ever should have been. And it's now time to to realize that we are seeking a heavenly kingdom and not an earthly kingdom, right? Yeah. So, um, so let's withdraw so in some sense. Um, or to, withdraw to build, what? Withdraw our belief? Well, withdraw no, our just to, to to be, in a sense, a parallel, like we've always been a parallel society alongside of the larger society, and to be very self-consciously apart in the world, but not of the world, right? And then, in that sense, as Christians, to regroup and find ourselves apart from the mainstream. And then, as we grow, and I think Spengler, for all the things he gets wrong about Christianity, I think he's essentially right about this, that the heart of Christian culture is this idea of, of the ghetto. So we are a nation without a land. Like so, most nations build out of ethnicity, soil, and and you know birth and all these types of things. Yeah. But the Christian nation is built self. It's it's really the only people in some sense that's built self consciously, right? So we conquer through conversion, and we draw people in, and then oh, no. we in, we encounter. This is. We this sounds that. like you're 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 beginning the Illulian technological project with the. This propaganda is not localized at all. It, it's propagandized. It, it's a, it's a it's a well, mass. The, 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 the thing is, is that and this is the, this is always the tension within the. Is that it is because it's it's God's project, right? So there mm-hmm. there is a sense this is God do now. Um, yeah. So it it, it is a tension, right? Um, but you inst- you're not instantiating it um, in that sense universally. You're, it's always on the ground, and this is the whole the whole role of discipleship, right? Okay. So it's it's instantiated person to person. So you bring people in, they're converted, and then they're discipled. And the bond it comes, the thing that bonds us together is 
the Spirit of God. So it is the Spirit of God that creates oneness among the people. So in a sense, the oneness is God's oneness, right? And so we bring, we convert people, bring them in, enculturate them, teach them how to be Christians in that sense, and they are bound together by And this is why the New Testament authors um, very much emphasize the importance of unity. You know, you are all in one spirit, different roles. Um, and so there's a recognition within the, within the church that, um, yeah, even though you're, I think, hoping to encompass all things, right? Christ came to save the world. Um, you might say that maybe the argument is that progressive and enlightenment universalism is a cheap knockoff of, um, in that regard, of God's project of redeeming the creation. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's maybe the fairest way to put it, um, because we don't have to save the world. Jesus already did that, right? So our call can be just very local, very person to person. So you meet people, um, you 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 um, bear witness to who Christ is. Um, they they are convicted, they repent and believe, and then you teach them how to be Christians and okay. give them a story, and. God, through his spirit, binds them together into a unified people. Okay. So, so there's human behavior, which is, uh, the, I guess that that's one aspect of Christianity. Like there, there, there's, yeah. um, it, it, it's behavior based, but there's also a Christian psychology, um, which is tied up with the story. It's like the, the value of actions, the value of thoughts. Christ was right up in your thought. Like if you look at that. Yeah. If you look at that nudie mag, it's just as the, the same as cheating on your yeah, wife, whatever, right? It's um, Ro- yeah, well, Romans, uh, yeah, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, right? There's that recognition that, well, and the whole thing Jesus says, you know, you can clean the outside of the cup, but if the inside of the cup is dirty, you remain dirty, right? Yeah. So it, there is that sense of, yeah, that, that there there is a certain level of psychologizing it. Um, but I think the other missing piece that we often forget in today's Christianity, and this is one thing that um, I, I don't know if, think if you're very familiar with it, um, Augusto del Noce, um, Carlo Lancelotti did a great service in translating his work, but he's an Italian philosopher, uh, mid-century, and he basically predicted everything, largely because he he looked at history philosophically. So del Noce argued that um, in a post-Nietzschean world, you have basically two types of revolution. You have... Um, the Marxist revolution, which is sort of broadly speaking, uh, future utopianism, right? Via and the bureaucratic have, state. Yeah. And then you have reaction, right? Which is, in a sense, fascism, which is past utopianism. So they are the argument is that in the past, utopia, the, the best that we can do was found in the past. And so what we need to do is sweep away the present order and reinstantiate this past utopia. And then once again, we'll be utopias, right? Whereas the other one is we have to sweep away the present order and then the fu- the, the the new order will emerge once the present order is in the future, right? And Del Noce argues that both of these are, are post-Nietzschean in a sense that they, that they miss a piece. And so um, Del Noce argues that there is sort of a third option, which is being plugged into a living tradition. Now, he talks about, because mm-hmm. it's, it's like scientifically, he says the one thing that we deny, he says, is the supernatural. And I'm probably going to get this wrong. Um, I, I was just started tweeting about, I started getting into the, the book, The Problem of Atheism, and then I had a couple library books come in that I have to read before, because I own that copy, so the library gets books get read first. Um, I think it's ontologism. But the idea is, and it was considered 
some were willing to condemn it as almost heretical, but there's this idea that God can be encountered directly as a datum, right? That you have to take seriously. A datum? So this idea, like a datum, like like measuring things, like like science. So, so, so what Del Noce argued is, is that the, the supernatural is real, and this is from a philosophical perspective, and you can encounter God, and this encounter with God forms a datum um, for reality, and it's for shaping our reality. So, okay. in a sense, you, you do so within a living tradition, but the reason why this tradition lives is because you encounter the transcendent in a supernatural way. In other words, your encounter with God is not theoretical, in a sense, like God exists out there, like almost like a deist type thing, where God is out there, and but I don't really encounter. No, Del Noce argues, no, you, you really encounter God, and this is a datum that you take seriously for life, right? So, as I was saying to to the Prudentialists, that that um, that that with with Del Noce. Um, he raises this question of authority, and this is really the problem that we have with society today, is that by being materialist, we, 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 we try to ground authority in rationality, but it has no ground. So it becomes these close, this is what Schmidt would talk about, these closed systems of rationality. <laughs> and ultimately, if, you know, my work in, in hermeneutics is that um, really, if you look at it from postmoderns, is that there's right. If you look at it from a materialist point of view, there really is no grounding for anything. It's right. all and that's basically sort of, that's arbitrary the, or power. It's all based on That's assertion. right. That's the post-Nietzschean reality. And and Del Noce argues is that no, there is a third there's a third way. He says the one thing that they don't want to grapple with is this idea, okay, if the transcendent is real and God is real, and God being encountered and unmet, but that then becomes the source of authority. Right, so it, I don't know how familiar you are with the Gospel mm. of John, but there's this also there's this whole dialogue in the Gospel of John of, you know. Um, where do you come from? You know, what gives you the right to tell us these things? Or what gives you the authority to tell us these things? Do a sign, and then we'll know that you come from God. And then Jesus always refuses, you know, if you'd read Moses, you would know where I come from, right? And I testify for myself, right? So there's this whole, this whole testimony. So there's this idea um, that authority comes down to, so Part of the Christian faith is, in a sense, and, and the biblical faith is that you accept the fact, okay, so Moses met God in the burning bush. Moses went up the mountain, and he met God on the mountain. Jesus is God become man, living among us, right? Um, Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. They had the experience of, of the unveiling of, of his divinity on the mountain. Paul really met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Right, and so your authority, the authority is is rooted in it because you get those passages in Paul where Paul says, "I don't have a direct word from Christ, but as one trustworthy, here's what I say." So what Paul is saying is, because I met Jesus on the road, and because that was generally accepted by the other apostles as valid, right, that then gives me the authority to pronounce as one who is trustworthy of God. So I speak in God's behalf. And this is, in a sense, also what Schmidt talks about when he talks about the miracle of law. So the king is the embodiment of this idea of the miracle of law, the divine presence among the people. This is partly this Germanic idea of the magical blood <laughs> in the chieftain. It gives them this sort of special ability. Not a dangerous idea at all. 
this idea to lead, right? So yeah. that, this is how you get this marriage between the two. So the this is where the divine right of kings comes down, right? So this idea of Germanic, the the the, the magical blood of the king um, that makes them special and kingly gets united with this, this Christian tradition of the hierarchy of God. And so the king becomes then the embodiment of the law of God, which is a very Old Testament idea, right? Um, and so the king then, when he pronounces the law, is then it's almost like this miraculous unveiling. So what grounds it, the law is grounded in God through the king, right? Through this supernatural. So Del Noche then talks about, he says, so, so we want to root ourselves in this living tradition of a living encounter with God as instantiated in the Christian community. So he says, this encounter with God still lives in the Christian community. People are still encountering God, still can do it directly, but they do so within the constraints of tradition, because again, the supernatural is a very dangerous sort of thing. There's much deception and, you know, the devil is very good at mass, you know, manipulating people, right? So yeah. you do so within this tradition, you meet God within the confines of the tradition, and it is thus, you know, and it's it's from this direct encounter with God, this living direct encounter of God, that then authority is established, right? And the visible part of that authority then is in in the sort of the imprimatur of the church and so forth, right? So mm -hmm. then you, you would have sort of going back to the old, the disciples, right? So Paul meets Damascus on the road, but he, he has to make the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to talk with the 12 who lived with Jesus. And then the 12 get to say, yes, he really did this. Paul is trustworthy. He has authority. He met Jesus on the road and his testimony is valid. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's that kind of, and so there's this whole, and so that's the, the thing that is really in many ways missing. So we substitute that with credentialism. You went to Harvard and you have a degree and now that theory gives you authority, yeah. right? Or you took a bunch of measurements, you tested some stuff, right? And it's repeatable. That gives you authority, right? The scientific method. So in substitute for all these other things, we try to, to create a substitute. And what Del Noce is saying is that no, to avoid the, the atheism of both hmm. the Marxist and the fascist, you have to have a living tradition of, and the only thing that really grounds anything then is ultimately, and this is the conclusion, that, and it's the same conclusion that I had been sort of tooling in the back of my mind, but Del Noce kind of gives the language that kind of all of a sudden puts it all together, unlocks it, and, and just sort of says, oh, yeah, that's what I've been kind of trying to say for years and years and years, is that and, and I've often said that too, like, um, and I've written several pieces on hermeneutics that when it comes down to things like, say, interpreting the Constitution, interpreting the Bible, right? Okay, so you trust the testimony of Paul, his words are in the scripture, but then you have to trust the testimony of your preacher when he says, this is what the this is what it means, right? And the same way that you trust the Supreme Court justice when he says this is what the Constitution means. Mm -hmm. So if we don't trust the 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 the, the the judgment, what we're ultimately saying is that we we don't trust our interpreters of the authorities, yeah. right, of the closed system of rationality, right? Because biblical hermeneutics is very much like constitutional hermeneutics in that way, right? So it ultimately comes down to, do you have a trustworthy interpreters? And, and Del Noce ultimately in the end says, well, you have trustworthy interpreters when they encounter the living God, right, within the tradition of the, the living tradition of the Christian church. So now you're sort of getting into, and so then you're, you're talking about sort of a different foundation from human progress and history, right? So now you're talking about refounding a society based on the living authority of God, instantiated in the Christian community, right? And it, you, you, 
and that's sort of peeling off because a lot of our churches and so forth nowadays have either become um, and have embraced modernity either through sexual ethics and the idea of human progress, or they've done it through managerialism and church growth, right? So we basically become church's business, right? And there's very, and even though we have all the God language, I'm not saying people aren't meeting God, because, you know, there's many fine Christians out there, but we've just, we do church as a business now. Um, and so so we, we have largely modernized the church, made it imminentized, but we really, the church has always had a very since you know, has, has always had a somewhat, the, the institution church has always had a somewhat uneasy relationship with the supernatural. So. Why? Uh, because they're scared of um, enthusiasm, shall we say, the craziness that can come. So um, are you familiar with the Montanus heresy? No. So Montanus or Montanus um, was a gentleman. So there was a great criticism with Tertullian and so forth. There was a lot of critiques. You can go back and already history. So there's many people that were worrying that like the prophetic gifts of the spirit, the, the signs and wonders were slowly disappearing in the church. And they saw this as a danger sign for where the church was going. Right. One of the figures who did this was a prophet named Montanus. And he was very, very critical. But then he kind of went off the rails and said that he was Christ come back again. Yeah. Right. So the church then said that uh, basically in dealing with it, made a pronouncement and said that, well, all of that spirit stuff that was for the the apostolic age, um, we have the apostolic secession, we have the witness of scripture, we have the institution of the church, we don't need that anymore. And so this was their way of sort of saying, this is how we avoid all the craziness stuff, Yeah, um, is we don't have to exercise on an ongoing basis the gift of discernment. We can just say, oh, that was the kind of stuff. And then and then you sort of slip it in the back door through the odd saint, right? Then, so it's, it's a special unique cases for the very few. But for the most of us, we really largely live without all this craziness. And that's a way to sort of keep all that, that heretical kind of stuff but off, then, the, off the books. But then, like you were saying about spiritual development, and nobody's doing that. Not even the monks are doing that in their covens like that's it's, already done somewhere in the past or here and there yeah well pop up we, we do, the person we do it today but a lot of it ends up being it it's personal a lot of it ends up being like personal growth right so um you know and that's 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 the unfortunate thing is is that we just we don't have um a um let me see just uh, another text personal coming. growth that sounds sounds exactly like this uh, bureaucratization, this technique again. Psychologizing, yeah. So it's it's unfortunate, but you know, there, there's the nice thing is that we're given the scriptures. So I think that any time that um, we as a church really decide that we're going to get serious about this, that we have it's all there for us to teach us, right? Um, but we just have to start doing it. So reaching out to the supernatural, you know, I mean, many of the promises that were made about the new or, or the, the era following Christ's coming, you know, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, the spirit will teach you. So there's all these promises that we, you know, don't quench the spirit's fire that, and I don't see anything in the scriptures that would say, or even within the church fathers, it would say all of this stuff is supposed to just disappear. It just dealing with it becomes inconvenient 
right? And it's hard to discern the spirits. It's dangerous. Like supernatural is always dangerous, right? So, um, and this, I think, one of the things in a materialist world we don't really want to encounter. But this is the thing that that Del Noche argues is the he says the the left doesn't really fear um, secularized Christianity. It doesn't really feel fear secularized conservatives. What it really fears is this kind of alternate system or alternate way of being um, rooted in a transcendent God that's supernaturally encountered, hmm. right? And so it's just a matter of, to, to me, it's a matter of cultivating, discipling it, and, and not just sort of your personal prayer life, but really encouraging people to be open to God's supernatural presence all around them, right? I oh, mean, okay, yeah. Right, and I, that's the there, there's more to it. I think well, I don't know if there's more to it. I mean, it's as simple and difficult as that, right? It just it's something that has to be cultivated. There is a um, and and th this cultivation can be instantiated in in practice. What we're talking about is the spiritual practice, prayer life. That's whatever right. That means prayer right? life, reading fasting, the word, prayer life, fasting. Um, yes, um, giving of yourself. Right, so personal sacrifice um, of your time you and it talents. Is, okay, so like charity. Yeah, so is that what you're saying? charity, but also in a sense, you know, um, you know, working with the poor, working with, and so then I mean, that's a Christianity is a long tradition. There's that uh, like the sheep and the goats, right? If you saw me hungry or thirsty, and you did, you know, and you gave me something to drink. If you saw me hungry and you fed me. If you saw me naked and you clothed me. If I was in prison and you visited me. So this, these, these are are long and deeply rooted within the Christian yeah. tradition. But is how, this yeah, how do you know that you're encountering the living God? How do you how do you you discern that? Well, you try to do it in community, but it's it's subtle. So, and it's all I can sense to say is like when when I encounter God, in a sense, I know the difference between when He's present and when I can't sense it. It's not that He's not there when I'm not sensing Him. Just I know the moments when um, I'm in a sense aware of the presence of God. What, what is that like? Um, I mean, yesterday I was on a hike. Um, we were out in the woods. I was praying meditatively as I was walking. And it was just, it was a combination of a peace and openness, awareness. It was just, you all of a sudden, you just felt something different and it was good and it was just there and you just knew that, God was with you right there in that moment. And there was nothing more to it than that. I was with God. God was with me. And we were just present with each other in the moment. And no more, no less. I wasn't necessarily asking for anything. It was just God was just there. Or I felt that God was there, right? And that's a lot of what, um, like, John 5, I think, 17, where, you know, we often took it like, oh, you know, what's God's plan for my life? And, and Jesus says, he says, no, he says, what I do is I just pay attention to what the Father is doing. And I do what the Father's doing. So a lot of what Jesus did is he was just a lot more aware of what God was doing all around him. And he just joined in what God was, what the Father was doing and just did what the Father was doing. And so that's the kind of, I think, awareness that, um, that I think, you know, um, that we're looking for. Just the sense that God is working here and I'm just going to join God in what he's doing. And it's going to be good and it's going to work out because that's what God's doing. So part of our, our, our modern sense is what, that we we have stunted that sense. Um, and so we busy, we want to, you know, we want to throw up a prayer or two and just get busy planning and doing right away without really waiting on the Lord. 
spending time in prayer and just really, you know, we want to just rush in and and do rather than pray and wait. Okay. Right? And that's the... I'm beginning to sound like a preacher again, right? Which no, well, no, you, my core you, training. Yeah, totally. Um, I think politi- politically, that's I think kind of where a lot of people, for me, anyways, that you know, it, it all comes back to um, the, the the great political battle is not between you know free market types and and so forth, but the real political battle in my mind is is the emergent, and that's why the cultural issues are the biggest thing is the emergent, um, you know, conflict between the Christian faith and the progressive faith. Right, and that's really, and we're losing right now. Anyway, at least it's on the, I mean, the battle's already won in Christ, but you know, this particular battle, um, it's not going well for us right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was, I was listening today to um, this podcast, Hermetics, Hermetics, and I think uh, I've heard it, yes. the guy did two episodes on Jack Alul with Jake Rawlinson, and the second uh, episode of that two-part series is about. Elul's Christianity and spirituality. And what I derive from this is that Elul had a, a very powerful, profound experience of the presence of God when he was 18. And, (laughs) and he bases a lot of his theology that, that non black pill part on this concept of presence. So the one thing that slips through the talons of technology and technique and policy is presence is is being with someone being with god being alive within this matrix right so you don't right. leave the matrix no god enters the matrix or or you see that god is even in the matrix or or you are you're communicating with god despite the matrix yes in a sense because you you never really escape material reality, right? You don't escape. You don't the world. want to. I don't think we want to do that. No, but like in a sense, it, it, this is, and I think this is the classic formulation. So you are in the world, but not of the world. So you you never really, in a sense, sense, escape Rome, right? You live within the Roman Empire in the past, right? But your your goals, your aspirations, everything about you is different. You're pointed to a different. So yes, we live here in the global American Empire. Um, technology surrounds us. But we are separate from all of the imperatives that drive it, shall we speak. So if I use technology, I'm in the world, but so that I'm, I'm constantly evaluating myself in terms of how is this interfering with my ability to remain close to God, right? Um, you know, and that's why I think a lot of, um, to me, the, the image I use is, is that old test, I think from Jeremiah, the idea of a cracked well. So there's a lot of social media, technological stuff that seems like it would fill you up, but in a sense is a is a cracked well. So the moment you pour, the more you pour into it, it doesn't hold it. It just kind of runs out the bottom. So you end up pouring yourself out into social media, you end up pouring yourself out into, and but you're empty. You're continually empty, and you're continually pouring. So you're always tired. You're always worn out. You're always yeah. on the treadmill. You're always grinding. You're always go go go. You know, technology has that kind of you're, you're run by the machine, right? And this interaction with God and the Spirit of God allows you even just for moments, that's the idea of Sabbath, right? To step off the treadmill and to just breathe and be with God. Yeah. yeah. There, I, there's an image that I have. I don't know the question that I'm going to ask you, but um, the intrusion of 
the progressive sexuality, um, LGBTQ plus mm. stuff into church where you have like drag pastors or um, the transing of Christ. It seems like if God is in the world and God could be even in all of this different sexuality stuff and could be in all this uh, transition stuff. How do, how do you know when a heresy is being committed by the church or when, when, when the intrusion or the, the flow of the flow is reversed in some way? I mean, there's, there's an aesthetic revulsion perhaps, but how do you know when the church is going sour wrong? It's it's multi. So in a sense, this is why you are are rooted in tradition, right? So this is in a sense, the disciples were taught by Christ. Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus. Um, in a sense, he's directly taught by Christ, right? Much in the same way that the apostles are. But for that to find, he goes to the twelve, and they say, "Yes, you were taught by Christ." Right, so you are an apostle like like one of us. So there is this sense that we then live within this living tradition. So you have, I mean, it's it's always funny when you get atheists or whatever trying to knock the church and and trying to come up with these devastating critiques that that now finally put you know, and it's like like dude, you do realize there's like two thousand years of tradition and like asked and answered um, like doesn't this 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 question was old before the church was even mature, right? And so there's a lot of 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 tradition and so there's that on the tradition the history side of it that how does it then violate sort of that living tradition it does is it compatible harmonious with the word of god with the living tradition mm -hmm. um sort of the word of god as interpreted through the living tradition um through the church fathers um but then also there is the idea of the the living discernment in a sense of just and that's what we talk about that living connection with the spirit of god so you have the spiritual gift of dis the discernment of spirits right so somebody looks at that and says with everything tradition scripture discernment i look at this and say this is a demonic possession of the church right these this is the well not possession, but let's say um uh, this is an, a, a demonic attack, oppression, because yet the possession is a very rare thing, right? But there's a lot of people who are demonically influenced and attacked who are not possessed. Um, and so, you you know, when you look around us, it's not hard to see um, the demonic aversion, inversion of all of the, uh, of, of what is right and true. You know, in some of these things, it's almost so obvious now that you're thinking, have they really overplayed their hand or that they they that confident that they feel like they can just openly just come out of the closet, so to speak, right? Openly and, and just be who they are. Um, but I think there is, there is a, and this is, I think, one of the marks of our times is is the level of, of um, just demonic oppression in our society. Um, until you look around and it, it's hard not to look at some of this, this stuff and just see... There's a there's a quote from the the Batman movie I like um, Christian Bale Batman movie where he's talking with um, uh, with Alfred and you know and they're trying to figure out why with, with the with the Joker right um, why why does it and, and Alfred says you know there are just some that just like to see it burn yeah. and there is that sense of that the devil that whatever is good and whatever is God's if he can just set fire to it and corrupt it he will. 
and just to do so. And so there's that sense, I think, in our culture now where we're getting to the point where the evil one is just letting it burn. You you did you did take on a little bit the people can't see you but you did take on a bit of the uh, Michael Caine Alfred um, oh yeah just, just, <laughs> just in, let in it burn and... yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a favorite movie of my my wife won't watch it because she just finds I mean um, it's a shame what happened to Heath Ledger but um, yeah yeah for all of his flaws he was a he was phenomenal that I think is his greatest role by the way that yeah the, it's um, really sad that it, he it's passed, sad that he didn't yeah, get more but, we didn't get more time with him and his talent. Um, but that, uh, I mean, him as Joker was just that, that was, that was next level. Yeah. What, yeah. what convinced you that Christianity is true? Well, I grew up Christian in that sense. So I have to credit my parents, but I've also been through, through, um, the educational ground, even with, within Christian university, once you start reading stuff, um, it, it becomes like that, what I call the chattering monkey in the back of your mind. Right. Yeah. So once the wider world of thinking and thought has put doubts in, they never the, the the chattering monkey never goes away. Right. But for me, it's 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 I look at what God has done in my life, and I look at just um, some of it is like the Pascal's wager, um, and others of it is that my experience of God is direct and real, and so for me that validates. You know, it, it adds that imprimatur on everything that's been passed down. And I, like I say to people that, you know what, even if I'm wrong, to me, this is just simply the best way to live. I don't think I'm wrong. I'm pretty certain that I'm not. Um, so it's, I guess, really, the, the ultimately it comes down to faith. So I think it's on some, you know, I believe so that I can understand. And that's what really by faith. Then, what do you mean by by belief? Because I, I think that one roadblock or stumbling block um, to people um, mm -hmm. post post Christians, um, avowed atheists or agnostics, is that doctrine and belief um, and accepting all these arcane principles like the Trinity mm -hmm. and and even even forgiveness and original sin. It's a stumbling block to utilizing the church as a vehicle for closeness to the living spirit of God, right? So there's got to be a formulation where that, that does have a place. Yeah. It's, so <clears throat> I think one of the ways that I, I, um, I approach it is that once you understand that there is a lot more to the world than than rationality. Um, you know, the scientific question of how does this work? Um, things that are f physically material. Um, that you understand that the ancients understood in many ways far better than we do um, the, the the ambiguities of of the world. This idea of wisdom. So for me, I think the my huh. pathway back to faith is through the the idea of wisdom literature, right? So this this um, there's a curious little, and I've mentioned this in some of my pieces, is this curious little grouping of passages in Proverbs 26, verse four and five, where you have one saying it says, you know. Um, do not correct a fool or you'll be wrapped up in his folly, something along those lines. And then the very next verse says, correct a fool or he will remain in his folly. Back to back, opposite advice. 
and you're thinking, <laughs> okay. And I, that one stuck with me for a long time, right? And you're trying to think of like, okay, what's going on here? Why is this? And then you realize that the truth is between the two. So it's like Abraham who goes up the mountain and encounters God. So, and this is why it says, you know, that wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So, you know, Abraham goes up the mountain and he discovers, he sees God, he's seen by God. Um, you know, it, 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 you have this new way of seeing. So you, you encounter the living God and you see the world as God sees it. And this is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you go out into the world, you don't have any answers, right? So then you meet a fool on the road. So what do you do? Do you correct him? Don't you correct him? Right. Well, it is your living before the face of God, trusting that in the moment the answer will be there, right? And then you just live into that reality, right? And then once you kind of embrace that reality, this idea of, of wizard, then then so much more, it, it's just, it's there in Christ. It's there. In, so there's all of these realities that surround faith, you know, like how can things be predetermined if I have freedom of will? How can God be three and God be one? And then you realize that in some sense, it's like, do I correct the fool or don't correct the fool? So there's a whole bunch of realities in a sense that be, can, can be grasped but not necessarily verbalized. They can be understood in the same way that like, you know, God or Moses meets God in the burning bush and, and he said, well, what's your name? And God refuses, oh, I just, I am who I am. I will be whom I will be, the flexibility of Hebrew verbs. In other words, huh. journey with me, meet me, walk with me, and you will figure me out. And then you figure, you realize, oh, we're made in the image of God. Well, that's how you meet real people. Like, who, who are you, Ben, in, in, in the heart of who you are, right? So we meet each other, we talk, whatever, but eventually there comes a time, there's a, that certain portion of yourself that is unspoken, that cannot be put into words, that's uniquely you, that's nothing of me, but it's just you and you alone, right? But then you look into my eyes, I look into your eyes, and we connect, and you realize that, like, oh, he understands me. And well, what do we understand? I don't know. I, I understand Ben, but can I put that into words? Why do you love me? That's always a classic question, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, and you're, you're lost, right? <laughs> but, that, but at the same time, too, so you, you, you meet God, and then you say, well, I've met God. Well, what did you meet? And, then, and this is, in a sense, what the ancients knew in, in, in terms of the language of the creeds. And this is, we're not describing God. We're just laying the fences of the language down, right? In a sense of, of sort of, this is kind of the, the boundaries of the playground. And then within that playground, um, here's what you, you then go and encounter, right? So the classic orthodox, um, you know, when you, when, you, when you look at language, theology, right? Two words, theos and logos, right? Word and God, right? We in the West, given our particular Western inclination towards... Um, you know, the, 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 the Faustian thing to know everything, right? We talk about words about God. So we want to be able to have a rational understanding of God, to be able to speak everything that can be spoken about God. Yeah. Whereas the, the Orthodox in the East, he, he's like, well, it's words to or with God. So theology is prayer. 
which is why Orthodox theology is a lot more fluid and flexible, mystical, in a mm. sense. You want to you do theology? Well, come with me and we'll pray. Right? And so this is what I would encourage somebody to do if you're worried about faith, is just, and, and you're worried about, do I have faith? Can I have faith? Um, I would just say, argue, just start praying. Start doing theology. Huh. And you... And do do theology within the tradition. So don't just do theology any old way. Like it's not Buddhism, right? We have you know Christ is a person. The truth walked among us, right? Um, but how do you meet Christ? How do you know the Word? How do you know Logos? Well, you encounter Him like I encounter you. So you you like like Moses did at the burning bush. So you have the one who cannot be named and yet was named in Jesus, and then you meet Him. And what do you have? Well, I have the God Man, and I met Him. But well, what, it, well, what is that? Well, he's fully God, he's fully man, but you haven't really said anything about him, right? But, you know, maybe if you pray and I are praying and we both meet the same God, we look at each other in the eyes within our Christian tradition and realize we both met the same God. And it lives within us, right? Then there's just that living encounter. So this, I think, in many ways, and, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest, this is one of these pieces that's somewhat absent probably from my own Calvinist tradition. Um, I mean, I'm rooted where I'm rooted, but I've journeyed where I've journeyed, right? Yeah. And so, um, and and I thankfully had a professor who was really good in, in teaching orthodoxy, and that got me sort of on that journey. It's I still struggle with some of the prayer to the saints sort of thing and some of those ideas and, and you know, being in a whitewashed church and 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 um, singing a cappella like organs are for teaching songs, so you don't use them. And you know, <laughs> so the whole, um, I mean, yeah. That, but so that that type of, of 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 tradition. But within that broader thing, I think this this idea that that you know you do theology by meeting God. Um, that is really kind of the way I would go in a sense. Like, I don't really have to convince you. God will convince you. That's what the Spirit's for. The Spirit convicts. I, I'll pray for you. And if you ask me questions, I'll answer them. But I'm not going to convince you to the, that God will do that. So if you really want to be convinced, um, talk to God and let him convince you. And to pivot back to the original conversation, yeah. when you, you kind of go up the mountain and, and you— Literally, you go on a hike, you meet God. Yeah, you you come back, you look at the world. Like, how do you how do you speak God into the culture war? How do you how do you bear witness as you critique the path of empire? Is that is that yeah. is are you yeah, that, is that, that a form of theology? Is that a form of prayer? To can can criticism can argument be a form of prayer? Well, or, still truth truth speaking, right? So to say. Yeah, to, to speak to truth speak and to say, no, that's not the way it is, right? You know, um, like uh, you know, I encountered like it was yesterday. My my sixteen year old daughter was you know, she had a friend with her, she's so texting and she's having boy troubles, right? And and my daughter said, I just find they had to be mean with her, and I just went like, okay, <laughs> but I said, I said, just be careful. Like, so what did you say to her? And well, she says, I just told her the truth about you know. And I said, well, that's not really being me, right? Hmm. You know, but our today's day and age is that if you if you tell somebody in a sense, speak the truth to them about their actions, that sort of bursts the bubble of their perceived sense of reality, um, that you now are being horrendously mean to them, right? So 
I I think that in many ways the 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 Christian has to dare to to speak the truth to say um, the pursuit of money without limits is immoral. Hmm. Um, the pursuit of technology without limits is immoral. The pursuit of knowledge without limits is immoral. Some things just shouldn't be known. Like you, sh- you don't need to know them. And 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 we we kind of bristle at at that idea. But you think to yourself like. Why does anybody need to know how to make viruses more deadly? Like, you can convince yourself there's a value to that, right? But and we bristled that, well, all things should be known. Well, no, they don't necessarily. You know, and this is the, this is the, the essential lesson of the Garden of Eden, right? Yeah. Is that some things shouldn't be known and part of the problems we have is that we tried to quest we tried to quest after all knowledge right yeah, yeah. i know these are these are ideas that bristle against is that um you well, know, if, you, if you're in a garden, yourself. it's not just Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, there's China and Russia in the garden too. And it's like, well, don't, don't, don't what? eat. No, don't, don't, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't and, touch and the AI th- fruit. This, this, okay. Now this will, this will circle us back to political realities and, and ground us again too. Because, and, and this is, and this is maybe a good way, a good segue into how do you deal with it as a Christian? Because we are, we do not live in an ideal world. We live in a world of sin and evil. And a world of sin and evil imposes certain exigencies upon us in that the choice is not always between what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, but oftentimes the choices are between evil and a greater evil. And so you have to decide, you have an evil neighbor as a, as a politician, and you have to decide whether that, that I must lie to our neighbors because it protects my people. Well, you still lied, right? You can't argue that the lying was for the greater good. This is the sort of thing I think, this is what Alul is really, really good for. He says, you have to not slip away from, you have to acknowledge that what you're doing is evil. And this is a term that Alul, that, that really helped me out immensely, but necessary, right? So it's a necessity. So th- these necessities that we engage in, whether they be lying, violence, all of the affairs of state and politics, um, they they corrupt us inherently, right? But they're necessary to do because we are entrusted with the care of a group of people. We have neighbors who are aggressive. So our neighbor across the way has factories and he has tanks rolling off the factories. And you'd like to believe, and this is something Alul says, you'd like to believe that you have the freedom of choice to do whatever you want to do to, to, as a people. But he says the reality is, is that your political choices are quite limited at that point. Right? And I've wrote about this one in, in his book, The Political Illusion. It's an illusion to think that you have political choices. He says, you had better be building factories pretty quick and have tanks rolling off yourself or you as a people are going to cease to exist. So your choices are limited, right? And so you have to introduce the, in a certain sense, the evil of certain knowledges and, and certain technologies and certain ways of doing things because you have the sense of, I'm tasked with the thing of, predict, of protecting my people, so we need tanks and we need missiles and I need to lie to my neighbors and I need to deceive my own people sometimes because if I knew all the truth... Um, that would not be bad. That, that, then my, 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 my neighbors would also know the truth. And so to protect my own people, I have to lie to them. And I can't have a completely open governance. 
right, where all the information is available to my people. So, and I have to sometimes propagandize them because I, I need their support. And this is an uncomfortable thing to do. So I'm going to convince them that it's the right thing to do because it's necessary, right? So there's a whole host of these choices that we have to gauge in because, not because I think it's the best thing to do in an absolute sense, but because my neighbor, we live in a sinful world and my neighbor is doing them. And so I have to do them as well too. This is one of the things that, that Elul noted about um, World War II. And he says, the only reason why Hitler is a bad guy is because he lost. Right? Had he won, he would have been celebrated as a hero. Right? And so if you look at how we fought wars, um, we basically matched German industrialization, you know, step for step and beat them at it. So we became our enemy in order to beat them. They were developing atomic bombs. We stole other science, scientists and developed them first. So we became our enemy. So Americans became the Germans, other than maybe the concentration camps and, and the, you know, the death camps. Well, I mean, but talking they to the Japanese about that, but... I, yeah, so there you go, right? So, so we became our enemies in order to defeat them. And Lul says this is just part of the... Lul's very... And this is where he talks about a Christian realism, right? He says you, you cannot delude yourself as Christian political leaders. He says even things like revolution and violent revolution may be a necessity, but don't delude yourself that you're doing something good. Because he says, in a sinful world, sometimes the only way to break the hold that oppression has in a society is through violence. So in a sense, like you've got somebody who's hysterical, you slap them to shake them out of their, you know what I mean? And so sometimes a, a, an oppressive society needs a violent revolution in order to break it out of the greater violence of the oppression, the lesser violence of the revolution. But he says, don't try to convince yourself that you're doing something good. Your revolution is still an evil. It's violence, it's killing, it's death, it's murder, and it corrupts your soul, right? And this is, in a sense, when I wrote that piece, he says, you know, the knowing, this is why Christian nationalism is, is, is a challenge, is, is I think something that you, you've got to be very, very careful of, because the church as an institution exists then for the rituals of, in a sense, reconciliation with God. So the church can live in a realistic world and know that it's political leaders say it like you've been very successful and you've conquered a whole society who through conversion, repentance and faith. And, but now you're a society that has a place and, and you, you, you have a totality. And now you have all of the, the, the demands of a state in a sinful world fall upon you, right? So the king has to go to war. He has to kill people. He has to put down rebellions, right? Or, you know, and, 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 the, the, the separate institution of the church and society says that you then have a place where the political leader can go and repent, even though he's knowing that it's like he's washed in the blood of Christ, that he's already forgiven, he's done this necessary evil thing, but he can have these sort of public rituals that acknowledge his what he's done is evil, that he's covered in God's grace, that he has forgiveness, and that in his heart he's penitential for it. Do you know what I mean? And so you, in a sense, stave off the, 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 the evil consuming the society by acknowledging the ritual's grace in the church. And that's the sense, the, the separate, and this is, I, I think, you know, what God's wisdom of, Christianity is really the only religion that grew up separate from the, the political structures. Everything else was sort of very wrapped up in the political structures of society. And Christianity is really the only faith that's separate from the crown, the, the state. And I think this is, 
this is this why this 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 mechanism of grace that we still live in a world where we're waiting for the second coming and as a result the king has a role in enforcing god's justice with violence in a sinful world right but we also know that in doing so the king imperils his soul and he needs to have the in a sense the priest the church there to symbolically enact that forgiveness for him as a public ritual right and that in a sense stabilizes society and lets you know that the, that even though we do these necessary things we do them we recognize that we live in a sinful world we do what we have to do but we also know thankfully that we have god's grace there to um to to cleanse us of the sin that we've done and and to recognize that that what we're not hoping for is this particular reality that we're bound over to a greater reality which is the second coming and, and the new heaven and the new earth right and so that's that whole dynamic within the sort of the church state relationship but the the thing that Alul does is 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 is, is really nice is is he um gives us this 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 mechanism of the necessary and necessity to allow us to grapple with the reality of the necessities of statecraft that certain things are just thrust upon you and they force them on you and you have to just decide between the greater evil and the lesser evil and there's no real way around it in a sinful world yeah um, and and being honest about that renews one's soul uh, I, I think so yes that's right yeah renews so their ability to or maintain some sort of connection to reality or morality without that all that sin stacking up in the king and then he goes well, mad like a well and this is the thing well and, and this is the thing well yeah and, and this is the thing also that alul says too he says if you try to do a politics of morality right an ethical policy unless this is the the unless you have sort of a unified moral culture everywhere all the time which is that's not happening until christ returns right and all things are but um you are either going to be hypocritical or ineffectual or both typically and this is the problem that plagues um in a sense the american right and the, the american republican party because they, they try to brand themselves as the ethical party the good guys and the left runs because the left is has no problem embracing the kind of Machiavellian power world, right? So the right never wants to do what's necessary or be seen doing what's necessary. They want to be seen as be always being the good guys. So you have to police all of your radicals away, um, and you can't acknowledge that you know what we got to do hard things and we've got to be bad people sometimes. And and this is for it's necessary for us as a society to survive for for me to take on this role of being a bad person i'm sorry that i've got to do this you know i got to do it i've got to do it um i'm willing to do this hard thing um but i'm also willing to come and do my penance and and my period of mourning shall i say over my sins um but know that this is what my vocation is i'm tasked with these difficult tiles with these difficult tiles. but we don't want to have that on that kind of honesty on the right and so we don't really embrace we we, we have a an inability to embrace power politics in a sense because we still want to be seen as always doing what's right and can, not just can, simply what's necessary okay by like power politics, like taking over the government, right? Is that what you're saying? Like yes, or punishing your enemies. Okay, punishing, punishing your enemies. Okay, punishing your enemies. Right. Um, 
Uh, Beyond just not buying a uh, Bud Light or running over it with your yeah. car and, and doing like burning your Nikes or something like that. You're, yeah, you're talking the, about. And it's 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 the idea that um, how to put it, where we're always trying to you know bridge the aisles, be the good guys. You know, it's like no, 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 no. Um, You've, you've got to realize that, you know, when somebody comes up to you and says, well, I thought you guys were Christians and you didn't do these sort of things. It's like, like, dude, you know, this is politics. This is what you got to do, you know, and and just to own it. But we're terrified of owning it because we're terrified of being called hypocrites. And so the ne the left, you know, it's like, yes, politics is an ugly business. I believe God's called me into this. And this means I have to do a few things that all things considered, I'd rather not do. But here I am doing them. Okay. And so... You know what I mean? But we, we don't really want to embrace that side. We have, we, we're challenged with embracing that side of things. And so um, the, 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 the people that are willing to do it is that kind of post-Nietzschean, the, 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 the fascist stream, shall we say, right, to exercise. So the default is not a kind of Christian realism. But we always want to, we, we end up veering off into this kind of, um, rather than living tradition, we're going to impose a kind of um, dead and, you know, sweep away the present order, impose the dead instantiated past. And, you know, if we just get the Middle Ages, but with rockets or whatever, then we'll be fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't that, be, because like Charles, Charles Haywood's been good to me. So I, I shouldn't, um, this is one thing that we've, I've emailed disagree, but and anyways, it's, you know, um, but it's. Are you talking uh, about his foundationalism? I listened to that yesterday. It was pretty, it was, I, I couldn't buy it. I, I couldn't buy it. I'm like, this is I don't, kinda, I don't fully either, but there is a lot of good stuff in there though but it's um there's something i i just um i'm he's a techno optimist and i'm not and that's okay. i think the big difference, well right? can but can can this progressive well can can christianity what you're talking about real realist christianity uh exist alongside progress or inside progress or with progress or does it need to stymie progress does it need to root out the belief in progress i think the sense of, of you have to be um we're not going to not live with the technical, right? So in a sense, we'd have to, again, the realistic thing is to realize that the technical is here. And like Alul says, there is no such, technique doesn't care, right? That's the thing. So we've, we've often looked at technique as it's, it's neutral, which is a mistake, right? So the, the, we've often looked at technique as neutral in the sense of it's, it's not the technique or the, or the technology that's the problem, it's how you use it. The classic example is a gun. Right, so you could use a gun for good purposes to defend or to hunt, or you can use it to 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 murder and to kill. Right, but Alul says no, 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 no. The technology doesn't care. It has in it, within itself. Uh, once you put it in there, it's going to have good effects and bad effects, and you cannot separate the two. Right, so the ability to hunt and protect yourself is there with the ability to cause chaos, murder, and war. They both are rooted in the gun itself, right? Um, and the same thing with the automobile or with air conditioning or the computer. So the good and the bad are rooted. So you have to recognize from a realistic perspective that the good and the evil are rooted in there. And the other thing is if we try to solve technical problems with more technique, the problems become increasingly more complicated, right? And... and Every time you, ins you, you 
solve one tech set of technical problems with a new set of technical with a, with a new technique that technique in turn has its own goods and ills right that then yeah. begin to accumulate over time um and many of them are are both for the goods and the ills are are unexpected so there's a certain sense of time where you would have to have a sense of realism that we have technology we're going to have new technologies they're not necessarily going to be better than the old technologies um and maybe there is a point, a balance point. And this is what I've tried to, to say. Like, is there perhaps a fulcrum point at which technology up to this point is human enhancing, but maybe beyond this point is not, right? So maybe that's the way we do it is that we will use these technologies because they enhance human flourishings, but these ones don't. So there may be a relationship where we need certain technologies, like we need tanks and missiles because our neighbors have tanks and missiles. But like you look at the Russian-Ukraine war has been, one of the things that's been demonstrating is that, you know, old fashioned shells and, um, and, and artillery, if you produce them fast enough and they're easy and cheap to produce, um, they're more than a match for sophisticated javelin missiles that cost a, a fortune. Right, um, and drones that are a couple of thousand dollars um, can be replicated, and and you know flood a zone and can be much more effective than missiles that are are a hundred times their cost. Right, yeah. so some of these things are maybe the most um, quote unquote advanced technology is not the best technology. Right. So you could be actually maybe in a better spot as a society by not. And that, that's part of I don't know if that's really the answer, but I think there is a reference where you have to grapple with it as a society. Say the technology is here. We have to grapple with it, come to grips with it. But maybe certain things is that we just say no to certain aspects of technology or maybe there's other ways other than um, technical management. Um the administrative state to, to govern our affairs, like to ask these questions. They're like, maybe just if you step outside of this technical system, maybe there is another way to relate to technology other than human progress, right? It's there, it's thing, and, and we can relate to it. But if we take away the progress that we're not going to create utopia by inter constantly introducing new utopias, maybe there's some old technologies that are better than the new ones. I mean, if you look at a lot of old machines, they're, I mean, many of them are chugging along just nicely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we may end up getting back to those just because they can be built cheaper with available materials from recycled uh, stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know how it would work out, but if, if... I don't have all the answers either, but yeah. The University of Michigan dismantled its DEI department and said, okay, th this is church stuff. We're going to... We're gonna, we're going to encourage people to go go back to church. Keep this in church. We, we need moral police somewhere, but but let's not have it embedded in the institution. Um, it would be hard to convince them of that because it's just a money printing machine for them. It would it would I think it would take an economic crisis for them to totally dismantle that. But well, it's it's that it's the whole Turchin thing, right? And this this is the idea is that um, they we have overproduced our elites. So yeah. it used to be that universities were for the real elites and um, they went because they got educated there, right? And they they bonded with each other. But people then looked at the university and said, well, that's the key is we need a university education. That will give us, that's the ticket into the elite. And so people began just, you know, degree printing. And, and now we have a flood of all of these university educated far more than we probably need. But um, there's enough still economic excess in the system 
that you can still find jobs for all of this. So a lot of these DEI programs are um, largely jo- like a, it's a jobs program for overeducated people with no other real useful skills. Hmm. Um, and it keeps them happy and non-revolutionary. Right. So once, you know, the, the question is, is once the money starts to run out and you can no longer, there's no longer enough access to yeah. afford wow. the DEI. I have, to, I have to push back on you. They are a revolutionary. They teach revolution. That's what well, they no, do. But the, re- the revolution right now. Okay. So this is Del Noche's other big thesis, right? Is that um, the, the bourgeoisie, so the, the, the capital, co-opted Marxism. Right. And, and it disintegrated in a sense. Um, it, it decomposed, I think, is the, is the correct word. So the capital decomposed Marxism by absorbing it um, in the form of progressivism. So they both embrace technical management. Right. So this the idea of the revolution is now put to service in capital, but you direct the revolutionary impulse not towards the power the bourgeoisie and capital the way it was before with marx instead you direct it to the enemies of progress which are the tradition right so you now then the the marxism decomposes is now put to service to support the regime but you have outlet for that revolutionary fervor by directing it against the traditional against the true enemy of the bourgeoisie which is those that might limit it right and for now, at least, you have enough jobs to provide space for these revolutionaries to keep them off the backs of the the of capital, the market. You know what I mean, the bourgeoisie. Yeah. So by just giving them jobs, right? So they now then you direct them. You guys just keep crushing away those traditionals. We'll keep over here making money, right? And we'll all convince ourselves that we're working on towards capital and the other things that we're working towards the great progressive future through yeah, the okay. administrative state through through technical management in both corporate and and in the public sector and we will believe that we are preventing or that we're engaged in the revolution by attacking um the the traditional so christians people with traditional values and 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 that that would potentially limit us and so now you have all these revolutionaries who now have jobs they're happy they've got a revolution they can put down the the enemies of progress and the bargain is the capitalists keep getting to accumulate wealth right yeah. so it's the for them it's the best of all worlds so they eliminate their enemies Right. They keep the, the revolutionaries happy, give them an outlet. And everybody believes that they're now working towards a, a progressive future and they get to just keep making money and accumulating wealth. And right. So, yeah, I don't I don't know of any society that has so many revolutionaries. So it is, is basically this pr- progressive progress. The, the doctrine of progress is producing a bunch of revolutionaries that then want to dismantle society that created them in the first place. So you're giving, so you give them an outlet. Well, I don't see, and this is the thing. Do that we this need is revolutionaries maybe my, anymore? I mean, is it? Is well, it, it, it seems like a flaw that the, the, these people are. Are, are the, will there always have there always been revolutionaries? So yeah, it, this this circles. There's always been kind of a revolutionary. But this circles us back. And this is one thing I'm actually reading. Um, Elul's autopsy of a revolution, and he argues that there has always been revolution. This is like again one of these. Uh, the, 
parts of a sinful world. He never usually says, but it's it's one of these parts of a sinful world that we always have revolution. But if we go back to the beginning of where we started, and this is why you know I'm coming to this idea, um, is that the West has always been this this even in, in sort of an infancy. Um, uh, the growth of, of what we see in the full form in the progressive, right, has always been battling with that which would restrain it. So you have the Faustian West is battling to shake off what would restrain it. Well, what ultimately restrains it is the Christian faith and the the living tradition. So now this is just simply the latest version of the attack against so it used to be that the church was in power. So they could be billed as like the power guy, right? The church yeah. and the king. But once you threw that off and you had Marcus, so now you have the liberal society, we have the liberal, then the bourgeoisie society. So Marx comes up, he says, well, no, we've got a, you know, the, there's going to be this proletarian revolution and we're going to overthrow the capitalists, right? And and that'll make everything equal again. And But okay. then capitalism, and this is what Del Noce notes, he says that the, that the, the the bourgeoisie market capitalism absorbed Marx, decomposed it, um, and brought it in the form of progressivism, um, brought it on board as sort of technical management, and then directed the revolutionary fervor towards the true enemy, which is still traditional Christianity. So they're even though they're in power and they're dominant, the real threat, and this is what Del Noce the real threat. Yeah. Is, is the believing Christian who just happens to be white European for the predominantly for the most part. So now this revolution, so the revolution is still, it's a, it's a war against the West's longtime enemy, um, against the Faustian, you know, the quest for unlimited money, the quest for unlimited knowledge, the quest for unlimited power for the horizons. The, the thing that has always limited it has been church tradition. And so, so now the, the revolution instead of overturning the capitalists, has been directed to yeah. finally maybe finish off its enemy once and for all, which is the Christian faith. Well, if, uh, you, if you redesign a, um, an alternative society, and what would you do in the, with the revolutionary spirit that uh, arises on the right? What's the proper way to harness that okay. and direct it? So this, this, that's a good question. So in, in this regard, so it's an almost in a sense, it's a part and parcel with the heroic spirit, the desire for conquest, right? So Christianity has always in that way interiorized the journey. So it, and, and this is the thing. So Clean it becomes. It, it's it, self-development, self-mastery. It's, it's in a sense, yes. So your goal is to. Now, we still live in a world of sin and evil, so there'll still be necessary things to do. So you will still need warriors, but ultimately the true battle is your battle with your own sinful nature in Christ. So in a sense, and that's really the, the heroic spirit, the, the hero is the one who is able to reveal Christ fully in his life, the saint, right? That is the, um, that's, that's really the emblem of, of the, uh, and that's sort of in a sense where the heroic battle goes. So to direct it, and that's really where you would in a sense direct the revolutionary spirit is to say, well, be wholly devoted. So then your excess then goes to, it pays for the monastery in that sense, right? Um, so the monastic becomes that, that person who is wholly devoted to the quest for, um, or fully instantiating the, the salvation of Jesus Christ, right? And that's, that's traditionally, 
Um, I think, you know, that would be the way to do it. The Desert Father, it begins with the Desert Fathers, you know, and there's that long tradition of of that. That's the hero within the Christian community is the is the is the monk in that sense. Yeah, well, okay, I mean, it's just a hard sell. Like, would you rather teach DEI and get 140K a year, or would you rather, like, sacrifice all of that? Well, and this is the thing that Alul notes in Propaganda. And he says, this is why true conservatism has a tough seal, because all propaganda must be in alignment with the core myths of society, right? So I don't know if you remember, like, Rush Limbaugh, they would talk about the, the dangers of environmentalism, right? Well, the environmentalists are all communists, right? They just want to shut down the market economy, right? So what we really need to do is trust science and trust the market. And then basically when figure, people figure out how to make money off of it, that's when we'll solve all the environmental problems. We just got to let the market loose, let the scientists loose, and they'll just, and they'll go, right? Okay, so that was, quote unquote, the right back in the 90s and the early 2000s, yeah. right? This is, this is what the right was. But those are, those are ideas that are in harmony with the core myth of the progressive society. So you would say, like, I mean, you hate to dump on Rush, but Rush was a progressive. Really, because he was he was he fully wasn't teaching bought restraint. Into, he wasn't teaching restraint. And that's it. And so what 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 um what what Alul says, he says anyone that teaches restraint, hardship, um, you know, self-discipline, all of these things, they run counter to the, the main thrust. So in a sense, this is why you need a cultural revolution of, um, and even, you know, probably the closest maybe that anyone got um, was, you know, as we say, the Austrian painter. Um, when you talk about, you know, Mein Kampf, the struggle, right? So what what he gave disaffected youth was was the, the glorious battle. I mean, this is why Stalingrad went the way it was, is because he couldn't retreat. But you, it's better. It was an ideological thing. You were better to die as a as a German to die in battle in Stalingrad than to re- retreat and admit defeat. Yeah. And so it was an ideological. So you you went off to your glorious death. You had the struggle, right? And of the struggle of the German people. So the struggle involved austerity, sacrifice, thing, but. It ultimately was still a modern quest because it would lead to um, our sacrifice would lead to the greatness of Germany, the Thousand Year Reich. And so, in a sense, it's just a different variation of the progressive huh. um, thing. But that's kind of the close. But r- what we're really talking about, and this is, in a sense, it goes back to the in the garden of the, the, the living Christian tradition is a sense of, no, the hero is the one who says no, that the hero is the one who goes without and says that. Um, I don't need that. And it's um, the technology is there and I could use it, um, but I don't need to. Right. And, and it's, it's a, it's a whole, like, this is, I think when you get down to it and you realize like there really is no right in, in the West in many ways in large, and, and what is there in my mind is rooted in a few crazies like me who are, you know, deeply rooted in theology, who understand, um, that that you really need like like a, 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 not just a completely different value system within the West, but you need a that uh, you need to root yourself in a completely different set of core myths. Um, because if you're rooted in the core myth of of human progress, and Lul goes on, there's a bunch of others like the value of youth, the value of work. Like this is another thing, right? Is that that we value um, the redeeming power of work. 
we just take it for granted. But this is a core myth of the West that worth is work is inherently valuable and redemptive. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's an essential valuable for building the kind of wealth and society that we have. Work is a, is you know, um, but it's not. Work is not a universal value. Work well, doesn't save you. But in the West, we believe it does. Okay. But it's good, right? though. Are you saying work isn't good? I'm not saying that work isn't good, but it's, 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 what, what are you, you know, is, is, is work a redemptive value? Well, I mean, uh, I, 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 I rest think. Is a redem- rest is a redemptive value. Well, too much rest isn't, though. I mean. Yeah, but um, in the sense of saying know, that, like, you know, whether, you... in the sense with Paul, whether I have or I don't have, um, whether I have plenty or I have little, um, I'm satisfied, I'm content. Yeah, so no, there's a I'm... sense of content, but you see, there's the, 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 this is why when you bore into the Christian message, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's deeply radical in a way that it's almost impossible for us as Westerners to fathom because we are so wrapped up in our own Westernness to, it, it's very hard to actually perceive what the gospel is saying. And not to say that the God's like, we were meant to go out and till the soil and the earth and, and, and care for the garden. Um, but one of the consequences of sin, right, is that um, Adam now had to toil for what the garden produced freely. Uh, yeah, but I just, I don't see how a man knows himself outside of exerting himself and, and testing himself in the world and, and through business well, or enterprise in or building that's something. The, is that's, where, that's where we or learn. Or the pursuit of or the pursuit of God and, and, and personal sacrifice, right? So the, 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 the work is really the warrior spirit transmuted in technology, right? So we used to, you know, it's the Germanic, con- the, the, the desire to, con- to, to, to conquer gets, and then Lul talks about this too, it gets, it gets transmuted into the, the value of work. So really yeah. work is the warrior spirit, but in an office cubicle. Um, and it's it's why there's so much like people feel there's so much missing. But the the idea of the warrior spirit is um, is not necessarily an inherently Christian value because the the what makes a man a man in in a biblical sense is his righteousness is his standing with God. He was he was a man of faith. He was a man of you know, and and God credited to him as righteousness. Right, so it is this thing that 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 what makes a man in the biblical sense is is he right with God? Not did he go and conquer his neighbor's vill- the, the neighboring village? That yeah. he tested himself again, you know. So that that, that again, the the value systems here are, and I mean, there's a lot I know in, in like American Christianity and Canadian Christianity, like Western Christianity that would push back against this a lot. But I mean, it's and I'm I'm not to say that I'm not. I mean, I'm a Western myself, but a lot of it is just, you know, it's the Ortega y Gasset, um, that a philosopher always stands one foot in and one side, foot out of his own culture. Well, yeah. And that's sort of the burden, that's the burden that the, that the philosopher bears, is that you're trying to step outside yourself to look at yourself culturally and to see, well, who are we and what is this all about? Now, you can never, like, objectivity is just not a thing. Like, you can never fully do it. You always are part of what you are. So, but we can look at it and say that, all of the, a lot of these things that we take for granted um, are not nearly as universal as we think we are, as they are. Like even mm-hmm. things like scientific laws, like Western science is Western science. That there's other explanations for um, for why things happen in the universe other than like um, <laughs> Wait, are you, are laws you of thermodynamics. Like, are we back to like postmodern relativism and indigenous ways of knowing? Is that what you're arguing for? 
No, but there's like, uh, you know, that there's uh, even in the biblical sense is, you know, um, part of the the whole, especially if you pay attention to the church fathers and the intertestinal pen, one of the, the testimonies is that, um, you know, God created the world, created angelic beings, and part of the role of the angelic beings is to help God in his task of managing creation, right? So part of the, the, the fall into sin or, or the fall of the angels is that they took worship that should have been directed to God for themselves, right? And so they took for themselves. So, I mean, I, like, I know I throw this out there to people, and as a Western, it just sounds wild, right? So we talk about, well, okay, you know, you could talk about, we talk about the laws of physics, but, you know, if I take, you know, I take my mouse and I let go of it, um, we could talk about, you know, God moving it from my hand to the floor. And what we're measuring is the effect of God moving from the hand more. And then if you take it to the next step, well, what if God had created beings that we can't see that helped him in that work? So there's, I let go of my mouse and it drops to the floor. <laughs> um, that Who's to say that there isn't a spiritual being taking the mouse from my hand and bringing it to the floor? And what we're measuring is the work of that. So I'm just saying that just a way of thinking, like you look at it and going like, oh yeah, that sounds well, like I, I think, really I think, out there. Well, that sounds know, really I, out there, but it's just sort of like, it's a way, like I say that to people to say like, just try to get outside. We, a lot of things that we assume are universal values are maybe not nearly as universal as you think they are. And maybe there are other ways of thinking about the world that are not nearly as crazy as you think they are once you dwell on them for a well, little bit. I, I, think that, I think that the material world is the material world. And, yes. and trying to escape the material world by telling stories about it isn't the way to re-enchant the world. Like, there's so many, there's so much extra already. Well, the, I, don't, we don't, I don't have to re-enchant the world. The world is, that's the other thing. The world is already enchanted. That's the well, funny yeah, thing. Yeah, but saying, like, like God is making my light uh, pour with light, you know, it's like, no, it's the electricity that's doing it. And, and, and if people didn't understand, like, plastics and electronics yeah, and stuff, see, we, that might I be wouldn't a have it. Anyways. That may be a difference of opinion, right? So uh, what you're looking at is just really the 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 outpouring of the the energies of god active in creation all the time well yeah but mankind mastered the laws figured out a language that's coherent and replicable just to say that god isn't coherent but yeah you know there's this there was this guy once who could walk on water and um that <laughs> have you, you know, ever met him like, do you know do you know jesus have you met him has he come to no, you no but i but here's the thing though is um, I believe that there were people that, that did meet him and know him and okay. saw these things and I accept their testimony. And that's part of this whole, goes back to, again, this question of authority, right? And well, so- no, I'm just, I'm wondering, like, you, you talk about the living God, but- But there are, you if you root back, there are plenty of stories of all of these kinds of things that are, just cannot be explained. We just don't want to well, look yeah. at them. No, I'm, I'm right? fine. I'm fine with the miraculous. No, I'm like, just arguing no, 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 it's, it's like a, taking the mundane world and trying to inject the miraculous. It just sounds- <laughs> Oh, I'm not trying to inject. No, no, no. Well, I'm just trying to sense of shake you up a little bit in a sense of the, um, that a lot of things that we describe, just say that the world is ordered, um, you know, otherwise, I mean, it's to say that, you know, that God isn't involved in creation all the time. He's just separate. So then you end up with kind of a deist God where God is kind of removed. So if I say that God is both transcendent and supernaturally active in the world, at a certain point in time, I have to to come across a thing. It's like, okay, well, how is God? Well, he's not active in physical laws, but he's inactive in other things. God's a clockmaker in this hack, but he's not a clockmaker when he does this. And it's like, well, why not just say that God's just active all the time? And then, and then just, okay, do I understand that? Okay, I can measure, I can measure God's activity with my ruler. 
Okay. See, and this is what this is what Del Noce is arguing is that you can maybe measure the activity of God with your ruler and your scientific instruments. <laughs> I know. Okay. You're like, and I'm like, I, I know you're like. Well, no, no. You're like, Listen, no, no. I, I understand. Like, there's like, a like formulation. Thomas, like, Thomas. There's a form. Yeah. There's a way of formulating the power of God without reducing God into some sort of. He's not, he's not, he's not pan, like we're not kind of talking a pantheist God is one with creation, right? Yeah. So the creation is still se- like ontologically separate from God. And you can say ultimately in his essence, God is unknowable, but we experience God all the time in his energia, in his energies, yeah. right? In the outpouring of his energy. So what's your well, experience then is the activity of God. So then, it, yeah. So then that's the question is if you're paying attention, the, the, the more that you pay attention in a sense, the more that you're able to see God active all around you all the time, yeah. In the blowing of the wind, in the the sun on your cheek, and and yeah. you could you could live with that in a material world. But I can also sense of like, yesterday the sun was on my cheek and it was just warm. Today the sun is on my cheek and I'm actually sensing the divine presence behind that warmth yeah. in my cheek. Yeah, yeah. Right. I just and so I think it, I think it's 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 easy for the, and one of the problems that I have with religious thinking is that men get theologians they 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 get so invested in their uh, in the tool of the mind that they think mm-hmm. that they can just tell it just becomes uh, it just becomes a mechanism for them to translate everything into some sort of believing process it, it reduces creation into some sort of pattern recognition machine and but the the mind can be filled with the light of God but you have to be aware yes. that your mind is not your being you have to be uh, it, I think that spirituality precedes belief in that it it, it enacts on the floor of consciousness and awareness. And when we become more and more aware of more and more spiritually developed, we become aware of the act uh, or the, the action of God in our mind, in our heart, in our feelings and in, in the blowing of the wind and, and so on and so forth. But to read to, I think it's just the problem with religion and theology is that it just starts telling stories that don't need to be told that are, a vain or, project or and here's the other way to do it is that um we're always telling stories right so if you look at it and this is something that like thomas kuhn argued in in um the structure of scientific revolutions right that um a lot of what we take for for granted in science is a lot of it is just um basically a clash of generations, right? In many ways, you know. Um, And so you have one paradigm shifts another paradigm and so forth. So a lot of times, I mean, to say that, 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 that theologians are telling stories, I would say, yes, exactly, I'm telling a story. But so too is like, say, the evolutionary biologist. He's telling a story. Right. And so what makes and this is now where we've pushed through in postmodernism to the other side. Right. Um, What makes his story more credible than mine? Who has authority? By what by what authority do you tell me this story? And I'm like, and this actually comes down to and this is, again, the crisis of authority. So what makes the scientific authority like the scientific story inherently more credible than my story? It isn't. It depends on, Um, on the context. Do I want well, to hire not, maybe, a theologian to fix my plumbing? No, I want a plumber to fix my plumbing. No, but you might get better service from a plumber who's aware of the move of God, though, 
And um, so well, yeah, that, but that, he, but the, the, it's just a, it's just priorities. It's like evolutionary well, thinking or the evolutionary uh, you know storytelling is is scientific ways of knowing is is absolutely essential because we've built so many things out of that scientific ah, knowing. The progressive West. See, this is the this is the thing we built the progressive West out yeah. of this kind of yeah. So then. The, the argument it's just is knowing that, to put it put it in its place, like uh, like the, well, to, the, the, to take the, the computer the, the off the top is, of my head and put it yeah. on my lap, right? But but, see, but this is the thing, though, and that's the question comes down to is um, is are are the two worlds compatible or are so? And so there's this, always this pushback from from the from the the Western way of thinking, in a sense, while. You know, and this is the kind of thing of scientism is that that, that this is the this is the only way this is the only story that that can be told. And so, I would argue that um, part of challenging the West, and I like I and I will say it as as kind of out there as possible, and I, I recognize that it's in part to just shake people up. You know what I mean? I, there's nothing wrong with measuring stuff with your with your instruments and coming and doing math and and all of the rest of it. But to to compartmentalize and say that there are activities that are just scientific and there are activities that are just religious, uh, okay. um, I would argue that the two are basically the same reality. And that you and, and this is part of the problem with the West is that because it make because this, this one limits us, we push this all aside and said we can't answer that question. So we're just going to ask the question, how does it work in terms of perception materiality and i'm going to say well okay yeah that's good you've measured it but what does it mean and yeah. or you've measured the surface reality of it but what about the unseen reality and and so maybe there's these two worlds that are working side by side and on top of each other that you know and then this is the kind of thing that i think um just hasn't been challenged enough because people have been sort of mocked and ridiculed into silence and say that, you know, narrative and story are are really where the true power in, in that sense, like biblical story, right? We so we have so what is the story? The story of of our society is the story of human progress, right? Yeah. And I said, well, no, that we have another story, and that's I guess what we offer is another story where God is intimately and directly involved in His created world. Um, from the creation, through the fall, to redemption, to um, the second coming. And in between, God is active and present in his story that he's invited us into. You know, come walk with me, journey with me. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, but for me, and again, it's sort of, and this is why, you know, it's... It's just, it's you don't hard. have to say that God is, is hired an angel to to go to your mouse and wait for you to drop it. <laughs> to, to... Oh my ca my camera has just died. The battery. I've got to get yeah. a thing to yeah. It's fine, but it's, it's probably getting its time. It's probably it's probably about the time I got to wind up. Yeah. Well, I don't have to, but I think. <laughs> I know. You, I know. I think, it was a rhetorical thing. I just no, no, no. But I think it's a. I think it's a thorough. It's it's really out there even for me. But I think just to sort of shake you up and just to think about it, that it's. That in theory, that that's that is, and the two realities can overlay. Like you could be measuring that and calculating the rate of the rate of movement from my hand to thing, and it can be predictable and repeatable. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, there could be an underlying spiritual reality that is instrumental in all of that happening. And just because you can't measure it with your instruments doesn't make it any less real. 
And that's the sense of like, now it could be just simply God doing it. And maybe we're more comfortable with that. But I always push it to the next level just to really, huh. like when I say, when I'm talking about the supernatural and we're talking about it's, it's real, this is kind of where a, like a living relationship well, with God, it opens you up to this whole world okay. of... Then and this is what you're opening yourself up to, and this is what I'm encouraging yeah, people yeah. to open themselves. Yeah, up yeah. To. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm saying, like, like you said something about Christ. Christ saw the Father acting in the world, and Christ yeah. like helped the Father. Christ didn't get in the way of God, right? Which no, can, but he also. Right? But when, but there were, but also, like, oh, I'm going to go mess up this thing that God's doing. You could, could no, no, do no, that but, if you want, but but when but when demonic spirits, unclean spirits, were oppressing people. Jesus was quite willing to to speak the power of God and command them to leave. Yeah. Right? So so in a sense that he's interacting with these realities um, in a way that we don't often today. He, right? He's correcting and, the fool and not correcting the fool. He knows when. That's right. When, Even, he knows himself. when God's at work yeah. and he knows when the devil is at work. And he knows the difference between the two because he sees with the sight of God in a way that most some of us would hope that we see but likely will almost certainly never will but if we even take a few steps towards that um we will have a, a far greater sight than we do right so i probably should get going though well, how it's do i pronounce your your anonymous right wing hate account name cryptos cryptos it's it's from cryptos. the greek like cryptic what does it mean oh okay Cryptic. cryptic. Well, and actually, it's it, it's it's this is a kind of my big self-own. When I came online, I thought, like, I want to talk about these kind of spiritual realities, unseen yeah. world you can't put into words, right? Yeah. And there's a passage in Peter um, where he talks about we speak the things that are hidden, right? That mm -hmm. that's what, and the word for that is apokekrumene in the Greek. So I just thought. I would transliterate it and put it in, and that's sort of where my proto. And then, but then I realized that I can barely pronounce it. Nobody else can barely <laughs> pronounce it. It isn't memorable, and I like this is a total self own. But now the problem was is that my 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 Twitter feed and my website were beginning to take off, and my Substack were beginning to take off. So now I'm stuck with it. So yeah. I just then in the in the in the bold thing shortened it to the root word, which is cryptos cryptic. But then when I when I when I went off Twitter for a while and my account blew up, they they basically if you're gone for 30 days, oh. I, I didn't realize Twitter deletes your account. Oh, I so I had to start. Yeah, I had to start. So I just basically deactivated for 30 days, longer than 30. I was like three months I was off. I needed a break. And um, I was going to walk away from permanently. And, and Gio actually convinced me that, hmm. you know, he said something. He said, are you being afraid of success? And I thought, you know, there's something to that. <laughs> that you get you get big and you're just not willing to put the work in to, to do the next step to be, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to. And then, but it also is the whole thing of. Am I afraid to confront the technology of social media? In a sense, it's easier just to wall it off than to confront it and have mastery over it, right? And so I thought, no, I'm taking the easy path by stepping away. So I said to, I said to, I talked with Gio, I said, to, you know, I'm going to re-engage and I'm going to reactivate my account. And Gio said, well, that's good. Let's do it right when I do it. Let's record the interview. And then when, I, when I'm ready to broadcast, you can reactivate right upon the same time and it'll give you a boost to start. And I thought that's go. a good that's a good plan. So yeah, so that was kind of my self own. So now when I have the account, it's it's cryptos and cryptos and it's nice and it's cryptic. And people and I have the 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 graphic was the one I settled on. It's from um, Brandon Sanderson's the um, his uh, the the Mistborn. No, that's the 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 Star Stormlight Archives. 
Okay. Right for you. Talk about the spren. That's another one too. And he's another guy that's, that pushes the boundaries. Little spirits that are involved in all of the physical realities of life. Okay. But there's there's one type of spren called a cryptic. And um, <laughs> so I thought, oh, the cryptos. I'll take the cryptic, the, the in their native form. I'll take a, somebody drew up a, what a cryptic this should look like, and that's the the little head that I use. Um, a little bit of stole somebody I've stolen somebody's art to use as my uh, icon. So I know. Maybe Sweet. they'll come after. Me. Who knows? Well, and so plug your Substack, and I'll put it in the description as well as your Twitter, so people can follow you. Yeah. When does it go live? Uh, I don't know yet. So plug Just, it, and I'll stop the recording. And then I can tell you about the technical details. Yeah. So we'll do that, and I'll I'll give somebody drift, and I'll I'll throw what's, it up on my Twitter feed. What's your Substack? Just say it into the microphone. Oh. Applekek Ruminane at subset.substack.com, okay. something like that. You can Nobody's find it on my Twitter, which is easier. No, I'll, um, I'll put just, links in the description. I thought it was something yeah, that just, people could pronounce, but it's not. No, so. no, it's not. It's brutal. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, we all have those moments, and I unfortunately have had mine where I was just. Mm too clever for my own good yeah that's it okay happens. that's okay it's happening it's the internet 